the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. Today's episode is on a topic that was recently presented at our orthopedic boot camp, and it's titled Orthopedic Urgencies and Emergencies. It's my pleasure to welcome Caitlin Muldoon, who's a PA. Caitlin comes from Charlotte, where she works in orthopedics and does trauma. Caitlin, thanks for being on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. You had several topics you discussed in Charlotte, and I was hoping we could chat about some of the diagnosis diagnoses, I should say, for a larger audience. And I'll just jump right in, tell our listeners that we're going to talk about some different orthopedic urgencies and emergencies, including compartment syndrome, flexor tenosynovitis, open book pelvic fractures, hip dislocations, knee dislocations, and supracondylar humerus fractures. And that is a whole lot of trauma. So let's just go ahead and start, I guess, with a acute compartment syndrome. I, I actually have seen this a few times, not that many, but I've seen it a couple of times. Caitlin, what is acute compartment syndrome and who gets it and what are common sites for injuries? Sure. So essentially, compartment syndrome occurs when the closed muscle compartment pressure exceeds the perfusion pressure. And that results in ischemia to tissues due to decreased tissue perfusion. Anyone can get compartment syndrome the younger patients, those between 12 and 19, tend to be more at risk. The most common way to get it is to endure trauma. That includes fractures, crush injuries, and gunshot wounds. Fractures, particularly daphacil, actually make up about 70% of cases on their own. Tight casts, dressing, aquavization of intravenous fluids, burns, post-ischemic swelling, bleeding disorders, and arterial injury are also common ways to get compartment syndrome. Got it. And, you know, out of those things... I think it's really important, especially for our younger folks, to understand about getting a compartment syndrome and a cast. Mm-hmm. If you cast an extremity early on, there's a good chance they're going to swell a lot. So it's not uncommon that you can do that, but you might want to even consider bivalving the cast and wrapping it before you send them out if you're worried about swelling. You can always put on a new cast later, but if they get swollen in there, I tell every patient that if you get swelling in this and your pain gets a lot worse, you got to go somewhere right away and bivalve this. If you don't tell somebody that and they have a compartment syndrome and wind up having problems, you're you're going to have some issues with that. So make sure to tell people that. And I'm glad you pointed that out. We talk about the P's. What are they? Pain, pallor, the weird word, poikilothermia, <laughs> and some others. You know what? If the extremity is cold and pretty much limp and no motor function, it's done. I mean, uh, you might be able to get some back, but you really have to get to this early. That's really important. And the pain and pallor and pulselessness, some of the things come late. So you really want to diagnose it early. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis and time is tissue. So getting to it early is essential. I think having a high index of suspicion in cases where compartment syndrome is more likely is a good place to start. The first symptom is typically pain, but that's the presenting symptom for a lot of extremity complaints. We want to focus on pain that's out of proportion with the injury or that isn't being alleviated or is actually worsening despite repeated doses of analgesics. We want to evaluate these patients and when they have pain with passive stretch, that's an important finding. Like you said, paralysis and pulselessness are also evidence of compartment syndrome, though they're pretty late findings. I used to have an attending who said that if the extremity is pulseless, you no longer have compartment syndrome, you have missed it. 
Among patients who can't communicate, such as those who are intubated and sedated, it can be really challenging to diagnose compartment syndrome. In those cases, the diagnosis can be made by using a device for intracompartmental pressure, which is then subtracted from the patient's diastolic blood pressure and gives you a delta pressure. If the delta pressure is under 30 millimeters of mercury, the patient has a compartment syndrome. Absolutely. And also, listeners, make sure that we're differentiating between chronic compartment syndrome like runners or, you know, the marching recruits in the army boot camp or whatever versus mm-hmm. acute compartment syndrome, two totally different things. I think both are treated with fasciotomies. Is that right, Caitlin? The chronic, if it's uh, uh, symptomatic, but the acute fasciotomy is the way to treat these, right? Absolutely. The treatment for acute compartment syndrome is an emergent fasciotomy to every compartment of whatever is involved. For example, if someone has a lower leg compartment syndrome, then we have to do a fasciotomy of all four apologized compartments of the lower leg. Got it. And if you haven't seen one of those, it's pretty uh, pretty long, broad incision. I mean, you've got to release <laughs> the fascia all the way up and down. So it's a pretty dramatic thing, but it saves the extremity. So, okay. Flexor tenosynovitis. I've seen a few of these working through an orthopedic urgent care. In my experience, it's usually a paronychia that's gone bad or somebody has a bite or somebody that bites their nails. And, you know, if you bite your nails, stop. You get paronychias and stuff. But what's your experience with this? I think cats are the number one risk factor for developing flexor teno, at least where I practice. Anyone's at risk, but those who are more at risk are those with diabetes who are immunocompromised and who use intravenous drugs. Got it. Cats, humans, and then dogs. Those are the worst bites, if I remember in general. Tickling my memory banks mm-hmm. there. So what labs do you order on these patients? Flexor tenosynovitis itself is a clinical diagnosis. The lab work can be useful to aid the differential diagnosis of hand infections, because often these present as painful and swollen. I would typically get a CBC for any leukocytosis or bandemia a metabolic panel to evaluate renal status to guide treatment, to guide antibiotic therapy. And then an ESR and CRP can be helpful if they're negative, but because they're nonspecific and elevation isn't diagnostic. The patient's septic from it, febrile, tachycardic, hypotensive, lactic, and blood cultures would get added on. Let's talk about cannabis signs. What are mm-hmm. cannabis signs? And is there a criteria that you have to have so many positives before an IND, or is it just kind of a diagnostic guide? The cannabis signs are a validated clinical decision tool to help diagnose this exact condition. Each of them themselves has a 91 to 97% sensitivity, and so if there are multiple, it increases the likelihood that the condition is present. The earliest sign is pain with passive extension, and that, along with pain, tenderness to palpation in the tendon sheath, are probably the two most sensitive and specific. The other two include fusiform swelling or a sausage digit and fingers that are held in the flex position. We have a fairly low threshold to operate given the high morbidity associated with flexor tenosynovitis. Sometimes if someone presents very early and only have one of the signs, but a compelling story, we'll observe them and do serial clinical exams and have a risk versus benefit discussion. Got it. Yeah, the ones of these that I have seen, I mean, it's pretty dramatic. And it's like, you know, you got to get to the OR right away. Caitlin? Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to the OrthoPAC podcast. Listeners, our fourth annual Ortho in the West conference will be arthritis to arthroplasty, February the 17th through the 19th, 2023 in Phoenix, Arizona. The details are on paos.org website. Registration is open.